In just a few days, the world's attention will again be focused on London and the breathtaking pageantry that the British do so very, very well. But instead of a royal wedding or solemnly mourning a monarch with a backward glance, it will be with a look forward to King Charles III and his queen consort as they are crowned and a new monarchy begins to evolve. Britain has an extraordinary royal history beginning in 1066 when William the Conqueror sailed from France to fight the Anglo-Saxon kings and begin a new rule following the famed Battle of Hastings. Britain has had over 60 kings and queens, depending on how you count, spanning well over a thousand years. All the brilliant British pomp and circumstance we will shortly see, and it will be focused on Westminster Abbey, the site of coronations since Williams in the 11th century. The soaring Gothic Abbey Church that we see today was begun in the 13th century and has been the site, in addition to coronations, of royal funerals and royal weddings. This show, with my very special guest, will take a look back at several of Britain's most famous royal reigns with some bits of backstory perhaps we didn't know. We'll look at the world of Queen Victoria, whose reign sits firmly in the usual time frame of the Gilded Gentleman, and we'll look forward into how a modern monarchy might perhaps evolve. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we take a journey into corners light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. It's hard, I suppose, not to become obsessed with royalty. Magnificent palaces, luxurious robes, priceless jewels, and traditions and ceremonies filled with elegance and hundreds of years of tradition. We all certainly know it's really not quite like all of that, of course. Rebellions, inequalities, struggles for power, and certainly scandals all filter through the history of the British monarchy. Scholars have delved deeply over the years, uncovering bits of evidence to shed more accurate light on the lives of monarchs past. Popular audiences have recently passionately watched films and followed various television series devoted to the world of the Tudors, the Elizabethan court, the life of Queen Victoria, once England's longest reigning monarch until eclipsed by Elizabeth II in 2015, and of course, Queen Elizabeth herself and the House of Windsor in the most recent series, The Crown. I am joined today by one of Britain's most well-known, respected, and prolific historians to sort out a bit of fact from fiction, share a bit of a look behind royal doors, and explain perhaps just why we are so fascinated by it all. I am deeply honored to welcome historian and author Tracy Borman to the Gilded Gentleman. Tracy is the joint chief curator with Lucy Worsley of Historic Royal Palaces, the charity that oversees several former royal properties, including Hampton Court Palace, Kensington Palace, and the Tower of London. Tracy appears regularly on the BBC as a historical expert and has contributed to numerous magazines and lectures regularly. She is a widely published author, and her books have included histories of Henry VIII and the Tudors and Elizabeth I, among other royal figures. In addition, she has written several works of brilliantly researched historical fiction. Her most recent nonfiction were Crown and Scepter, a new history of Britain's monarchy from William the Conqueror to Charles III, is the basis for our chat today. Tracy, I could not be more honored to welcome you to The Gilded Gentleman. Thanks so much, Carl. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you. And what good timing this is. Uh, as when you run up to the coronation to be talking all things royal. I couldn't agree more. And we have a lot to talk about. So I'm so honored to have you here. But before we get into our, our little chat here about the monarchy, really, 
for anyone that is passionate and interested in British history, you really, truly have a dream job. Can you share with Gilded Gentlemen listeners just exactly what you do, what you oversee, and my favorite bit, just where exactly your office is? Yeah, let me start with that one. <laughs> so my office is in Hampton Court Palace, which is the former home of Henry VIII. All six of his wives uh, lived at Hampton Court at some stage. And my office is in the nursery of Henry VIII's son, Edward, the future Edward VI. So I'm right in the heart of the Tudor Palace. And as Joint Chief Curator, really, I get to do history. I get to research the history of the palaces, tell people about it. Um, I do lots of things like this um, and, and sort of TV shows, but... My favorite days are the ones when I am in the archives, squirreled away, researching the history of the palaces. So I do that for two days a week. And then the rest of my time, I'm writing books and, uh, and giving lectures and doing a bit of other TV work. So yes, but it's history is the common thread that unites everything I do. Now, You've been called a double royal because not only do you look after royal properties, former royal properties, but you have focused your research and work on the British royalty and monarchy throughout all of your published books. So how did your love of history really start? I love that idea of being doubly royal. That's fantastic. <laughs> you wear it very Maybe. well, Tracy. <laughs> yeah, and you see, now all I need is some kind of title or, or, you know, I need to be the Duchess of something, then I can be triply royal. Um, but how it got started for me, I mean, I've, I've loved history for as long as I can remember. And I grew up in Lincoln, which um, is an incredibly historic town in the sort of Midlands of England, a beautiful cathedral. And so I was surrounded by history. But it was really a teacher who actually kind of lit the spark for me um, when I was about 16. And my teacher, Mrs. Jones, uh, she used to put portraits of the Tudors around her walls. And she got across to me the fact that history is about human beings. You know, forget the dates and the events and the acts of parliament. It's about real people. And people don't change that much, I think, over time. So it was that kind of relatability that really got me hooked. And I think that is such an extraordinary hallmark of your work, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. You really do pull back the veil and and show, and we're going to talk about a couple of them, and show some people as really human beings with their strengths and weaknesses. And I think that makes that that takes the years away, right? And makes us with our modern yeah. eyes really understand them. Is that correct? Oh, completely. And that's that's really what keeps me going as a historian, sort of going behind closed doors and you're taking off the mask of royalty in many cases. Um, so probably most notably for my book on the private lives of the Tudors, where we look at the Tudors as they wouldn't have wanted us to see them. So Henry VIII actually was described as being very timid in real life. Now, that's not the Henry VIII that we know and love, but as you know, they were often so different as real people, real human beings. Um, and, and that's the sort of connection that I try to establish. Absolutely. Now, I definitely would like to dive into the world of, of the Tudors here and talk a little bit about Henry VIII, and we'll talk about some others as, as well. First of all, why do you think people, and I'm curious why you as well, why do you think people are so fascinated by the Tudors and Henry and his court? What is it about them? Oh, well, I mean, they have star appeal, don't they, the Tudors? It's the period when everything happens. It's you know, the king who marries six times, the virgin queen. It's the age of Shakespeare and overseas exploration. People circumnavigate the globe. It's such a self-confident age. And I think we find that irresistible. But I would also say that it has quite a lot to do with that man, Hans Holbein, the most famous portrait painter of the age, because he opens up this window for us into the Tudor court. And, you know, in the past, paintings tend to be a bit more stylized. But with Holbein, it's like having a photographer, a court photographer. And so we can really get a sense of what the Tudors look like, what their palaces were like. And I just think it makes it irresistible for us. And do you find with the Holbein portraits, they even portray a sense of personality? Oh, 
don't they? Oh, I I really experienced that at the, the, that glorious exhibition um, at the Met. We uh, just when had, I was yes, over yes. Oh, the Tudors, uh, and what a show that was! And and there were so many Holbeins jostling there for position. But I think you know probably my favourite example of that is his portrait of Thomas Cromwell. So he's a real favourite of mine. Um, and you really get a sense from that portrait that Cromwell means business. You know, he's shown at work. He's got a look of concentration on his face. He can seem quite intimidating when you first look at it, but then you look more deeply and you realise he's, he's thinking something through. He's in the middle of some great act of parliament or whatever it might be. Holbein was brilliant at that, not just showing us what these people look like, but giving us a hint of their character, as you say. Now, one of the fascinating things with with these particular two men, Henry VIII and certainly Cromwell, we have these images of these these tyrants, these incredibly difficult, strong men, all of which I'm sure is true. However, in Crown and Scepter and in some of your other writings, you have you have intimated that possibly there is another side to them, or yes. that how they arrived at that tyrannical personality. Uh, there's a little bit to understand there. So let's start with Henry VIII. What is the difference between the image, that, the popular image that has been seen of him and who you think he really was? Yeah, that's right. I mean, Henry VIII, you wouldn't imagine you can feel much sympathy with a man who you know, chops his wives' heads off, those of many of his ministers and favourites. Um, he did, did become a, almost a caricature in his later life, a kind of monster, a tyrant. But the real Henry, I think, deserves some more sympathy than that. When you look at Henry and how he suffered in private with his various physical ailments, particularly after that jousting accident he had in, in 1536, that was a real turning point in his life. And he couldn't exercise anymore. This was a man who really relied on physical outlets and he couldn't do any of that. So he was deeply frustrated and he was also in pain from that day forward. And and pain does something to a person. There's no wonder he becomes very short-tempered and, and irascible. But I think what you see with Henry as well is he's a hypochondriac. He is paranoid about sickness for good reason. He loses his beloved mother when he's still very young. And, and even more significantly, his elder brother, Arthur, he dies when he's just 15. That has a profound impact on Henry. He learns that life is very perilously short. So he's very insecure. And I think that insecurity does explain, if not quite excuse, a lot of his later actions. And what about Cromwell? Because certainly responsible for the downfall of Anne Boleyn, little question about that. But there's another side to Cromwell too, correct? There's a much more likable side to Cromwell. Yes, we cannot forgive him for Anne Boleyn's downfall. I do think he was the chief architect in that. Uh, but he was also a man who was so likable. He was very irreverent. He wasn't cowed by authority. Uh, he told Henry VIII exactly what he thought. And he poked fun at him and he poked fun at Henry's courtiers and he even made his enemies laugh. This was the sort of man you would want to sit next to at a dinner party. I think Thomas Cromwell, fascinating character. Um, and he really deserves, I think, our admiration and respect because he came from nowhere. He's the son of a blacksmith. He's not born to his position like all of his colleagues. He's there through sheer hard work and brilliance. Uh, and so I, I absolutely love Cromwell. I've become a bit obsessed with him, actually. <laughs> now, I'm very curious about your process, Tracy, certainly through your biography of Henry VIII, also your work on Cromwell, Private Lives of the Tudors. How did you go about digging a little deeper? Were there specific archives, specific documents that you discovered or had access to? What were you able to see and look at that really helped shape your your revised um, notions or our revised notions? Mm, absolutely. I think the thing is that often it's the documents or the series of documents that sound the driest that yield the most fascinating information. And that was definitely the case with the private lives where I sifted through account books, household accounts. Now, I did, I myself expected them to be dry and rather dull. But you find out so much when you look at people, look at what they're spending their money on. 
Um, and it reveals, you know, their, their little weaknesses, their interests. Um, the fact that Cromwell, for example, kept canary birds as well as a leopard in his back garden and spent lavishly on wine. Um, you know, you get this kind of more rounded sense of a person. So account books and, and also obviously correspondence, ambassadors reports. But what I was really surprised by, I can't claim to have discovered these documents. But the kind of domestic details within them had been entirely overlooked as being irrelevant, really. Historians had focused on the great acts of state, you know, the big events of the Tudor period, but less so on the domestic. And I think it's so revealing when you find out how people are spending their time. And it explains a lot about their actions in the public sphere, I think. So really, it's a question of changing the prism, right? Through which we yeah. look at some of these people is that's what it is, right? Completely. Now, would you say that the roots of the modern monarchy actually really began in the Tudor period? There's some yeah. line of reasoning that that would subscribe to that. Do you do you think that's true? I think I think it's very largely true. I think it's for good reason that the Tudor period kind of marks what we call the beginning of the early modern age. So this transition from medieval times to, to modern times. And this is when you get really the, the, the parliament becomes all powerful thanks to Henry's Reformation and thanks to Cromwell again. And, um, the, you know, as I mentioned overseas exploration, we're starting to understand more of the world and England in particular, but the world in general is starting to take a form that we would recognize today. But really, in terms of the monarchy, I think there are very important differences because the Tudor monarchs were really absolute monarchs. They were in charge. They were rulers. And it's only really the following century, the 17th century, that you start to get the birth of constitutional monarchy, where the monarch is no longer really in charge and it's more about parliament. Uh, but that was later than the Tudors. And we'll certainly encounter that when we get to Queen Victoria, because that's a comment that you make in your in your introduction to the book. So I'd like to indulge our theme of coronations uh, a little bit. I can already feel the excitement coming up. So what do we know about Henry VIII's coronation, for example? And was there anything particularly significant about that particular moment? Well, Henry VIII's coronation was uh, interesting, and it's quite relevant to what we'll be seeing on the 6th of May, because it was a joint coronation with his consort, Catherine of Aragon. And there haven't been too many of those, actually, in history. Uh, you tend to get the monarch wanting all the limelight for themselves, and then their consort might be crowned separately or not at all. Um, and of course, we know that Camilla is going to be crowned uh, alongside Charles on the 6th of May. So so Henry VIII kind of set a, a youthful precedent for that. He wasn't the first, but he was one of the rarer ones. And we know you might expect it for Henry VIII. This was a coronation on a truly epic scale. You know, days of celebrations, feasting, tournaments, pageantry. And he was this young king who, he was only 17 at the time he came to the throne. And he wasn't like that bloated image we're more used to in the later reign. He cut a very fine figure. Somebody described him as an Adonis. He was incredibly good looking, very athletic. And they were this power couple, him and Catherine, uh, and they appeared in, in full glory and everything looked set fair. They adored each other. They were this young monarchy. And what could possibly go wrong? Well, <laughs> and therein lies the story, right? So let's move on to Elizabeth I, who became queen in 1558, reigned until her death in 1603. And now certainly, as so much has been written and dramatized about her life, I'm so curious what you find most fascinating about her. You've, you've actually said she's your favorite. And I loved a quote that you said that she makes us fall in love with queens. What did you oh. mean by that? And what are your thoughts about Elizabeth? She totally makes us fall in love with queens because before Elizabeth, really, queens regnant, ruling queens were seen not just as an anomaly, but as an abhorrence to nature. You know, it was said in the year of Elizabeth's accession that it was against the laws of nature to have a woman in charge. And so really, you would only have a queen if you absolutely had exhausted any other potential heir to the throne, male heir. 
But Elizabeth confounded all expectations uh, and in favour of her people at the time. They weren't just being totally prejudiced. There weren't any particularly inspiring examples of queens before Elizabeth. Her half-sister Mary hadn't done a great job, neither had poor Lady Jane Grey earlier, you know, the 12th century Queen Matilda. Everything descended into civil war. But Elizabeth changed hearts and minds. By the end of her reign, you know, she convinced people women could rule effectively. And I think, for me, she is our greatest monarch, hands down. Before I started writing Crown and Scepter, she was my favourite. She's even more my favourite now, having compared her to her 42 other kind of fellow kings and queens who ruled Britain. Now, one aspect of Elizabeth I that seemed very clear right from the beginning was how she used PR and how she manipulated and used her image. Can you talk about that from the moment she became queen throughout her reign? I think that's fascinating. I think this was the mark of her genius. Um, This image is so important to any monarch. It's all very well what you do, your actions are part of it, but you really need to make the most of your image and ensure that people look on you in a positive light. And and Elizabeth never missed an opportunity to really promote herself. And, And if we look at the Armada, for example, one of the greatest victories, arguably, in our history. Uh, So in 1588, we were the underdogs. Uh, There was this mighty armada from Spain heading our way. Well, thanks to Elizabeth's navy, but it was also, frankly, thanks to the British weather, uh, the armada was defeated and blown off course. And Elizabeth, of course, she's going to make the most of this. She has paintings done, the glorious armada portraits. She has medals struck. She gives that amazing speech at Tilbury. I have the body of a weak and feeble woman, but the heart and stomach of a king. This is a woman who appreciates the power of PR. And it's thanks to that, as well as to her actions, you have to have both, that we're still talking about her. We're still celebrating her 500 years on. And get excited about her. Oh, I can wax lyrical. I think we need a separate podcast. Okay, we can co- will you come Elizabeth? back and we can do a yeah. whole show on Elizabeth? I would oh, love to please. do that. Now, that, one yeah. of the things that was very clear, too, is that she did not want to marry and she didn't. No. So no. H- how did she use her gender in in clearly what was a very non-traditional way to garner power and strength? Yes. It's interesting. There was a lovely quote about Elizabeth by Robert Cecil, one of her later ministers, who said, she was more than a man, but sometimes less than a woman. And um, in other words, she was more than the equal of her male courtiers. But she was still seen as almost failing as a woman because she didn't marry. She didn't have children. She didn't fulfill those basic feminine functions as they were seen. But that was her brilliance. I think she made absolutely the right decision not to marry because she knew how divisive it would be if she took a a, a husband from overseas. Nobody wanted that because England would become just a mere satellite of a larger empire. And if she married a subject, that would create factions. And also, Elizabeth had fought hard for the throne. She didn't want to give up any power. I will have but one mistress here and no master, she said. Uh, So I think it ended up being her masterstroke, the fact she chose not to marry, although it was deeply shocking and unconventional. Because of the extraordinary job you have and the exceptional work that you do, that puts you in incredibly close contact with not only documents, but also objects and things that some of our historical characters have worn and touched. And and as you said at the top of the show, you you have the energy of a Tudor nursery around you as, as you work. How does all of that very tangible experience help you understand some of these characters? Oh, there's no substitute for it. And and Having those moments where you literally touch history, whether it's a letter that Elizabeth wrote or whoever I'm writing about at the time, or those objects, those objects tell us so much. And, and one that springs to mind is the checkers ring. So owned by Elizabeth I, I will get off the subject of Elizabeth in a moment, I promise. But the checkers ring is at the prime minister's country residence, checkers house. And uh, it's a locket ring 
that opens to reveal a portrait of Elizabeth and one of almost certainly her mother, Anne Boleyn. Now, until I actually went to look at this ring and tried it on or tried to, I didn't realize just how tiny it was. Now, Elizabeth was very, very proud of her slender fingers. And you read that and it doesn't really mean as much as when you go there and see one of her rings and you think, oh my goodness, she had really slender fingers because I couldn't even get it on my little finger. And things like that just humanize these characters and, and really bring them to life. And so, and the joy is we're still discovering objects. They're still turning up. Anne Boleyn's falcon was in the news uh, a few months ago. That, that is now at Hampton Courts undergoing restoration and, and we've displayed it. And this is this falcon that used to decorate Hampton Court and then just turned up at auction uh, randomly. So who, who knows what else is there in somebody's attic or cupboard somewhere. It's fascinating. It's so exciting. And I so wanted you to tell the story of the ring. I read that in an interview that you gave, and I so wanted you to talk about that locket ring because I think it was such an amazing moment. Now, what can you tell us about Elizabeth I's coronation and any particular significance that held? Oh, I am so pleased you asked me this. It's almost as if we planned it because um, I've just finished a book, uh, which is out in May in the UK. It's out in June in the States called um, Anne Boleyn and Elizabeth I, the mother and daughter who changed history. And a key part of that is how Elizabeth basically modelled herself on her mother and never more so than on her coronation day. In fact, she employed the same people to work on it as had worked for Anne Boleyn. And she took the same theme, which was the Virgin Mary. Um, So, you know, the, the purity and and white was everywhere. That was a big theme, the kind of the purity of the new queen. And they had, she had the same music. She wore the same crown as her mother. And she also paid homage to Anne Boleyn by having a life-size model of her mother as part of the procession. Now, Anne Boleyn's name was Mud. Nobody talked about Anne Boleyn. But here was Elizabeth putting her there front and centre on her coronation day. And she started as she meant to go on. She honoured her mother for the rest of her reign. Tracy, what do you think is the least known aspect about who Elizabeth I was? Oh, that's such a good question. I think, you know, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm saying this on purpose now, but, you know, one of the most often repeated myths is that she was all about her father. She was a daddy's girl. She talked about him. She never talked about her mother. So she didn't care about her mother. And you know, she was less than three years old when Anne Boleyn was executed. Now, I hope very much that I'm going to overturn that because the opposite was true. Um, Elizabeth spent her life trying to rehabilitate her mother's reputation. She surrounded herself by Boleyn relatives as queen and by mementos of her late mother, the Chequers ring being a you know, notable example. So. I would say Elizabeth I uh, was uh, much more of a mummy's girl than a daddy's girl. And also, I've, you know, I've written about the women in her life. We tend to obsess about whether she was the virgin queen and all of her flirtations with her male advisors. But actually, it was the women who shaped Elizabeth the most, the women with whom she was surrounded throughout her long life. So I think it's that. I've probably answered about five different things. Oh, it's wonderful. But you'll be talking about that in your new book. Am I correct about that? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. So listeners watch for that. Now, I want to jump way ahead here and and get into the world of Queen Victoria. But before I do that, there's really a very long period between Elizabeth I, who died in 1603, and Victoria becoming queen in 1837, 234 years. So Tracy, who in that particular long span of time. Is there anyone in there that you find particularly fascinating and anybody that maybe we don't know as much about as we should and that we maybe have overlooked? Yeah, or misunderstood. And for that, I would say James II. And you can't say, well, why do we talk about James II? Well, he's the brother of Charles II, the king who restored the monarchy in 1660 and had all all of these mistresses and all of these illegitimate children, but didn't manage a legitimate child, hence the crown passing to his brother, James. Now, he's had a bad press. He's seen as very intolerant, you know, stubbornly Catholic in an age where we were supposed to be Protestant. Um, And so he's, he's always portrayed negatively. 
And ultimately, Parliament got rid of James. They didn't execute him, but they exiled him. And they invited his daughter, Mary, and her husband, William, to take the throne. But James was not like that. And actually, he was very popular. It was a very small minority who got rid of James um, and presented him as this intolerant, dogmatic monarch when he was much more tolerant than most other monarchs uh, of the age. And he didn't want to impose his religious beliefs. He believed as he believed, but he was happy for people to follow their conscience, as he said. So I do think he deserves a bit more of the limelight. And indeed, his daughter, Mary, and it's thanks to Mary, really, that we have a constitutional monarchy, because she and William agreed this, this kind of contract with Parliament that said, yep, political power now rests with Parliament, not with the monarchy. And that's a contract that's still in place today. And listeners can go into Crown and Scepter, your book, and read these chapters. That's one of the things that I so enjoyed about going through each of the monarchs and, and getting your perspective and clarification, just like we just did. With, all right, James II, we will have a look at him again. Thank you. <laughs> and with that, Tracy and I are going to take a short break, refill our teacups, and we'll be right back to continue our look at the history of the British monarchy. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And this week, I am joined by historian and author Dr. Tracy Borman in celebration of the upcoming coronation and her most recent book, Crown and Scepter, a new look at Britain's monarchy from William the Conqueror to Charles III. Now, Tracy, I would really like to talk a little bit about Queen Victoria and her reign. So Queen Victoria, uh, Victoria became queen in 1837 after a rather, I think we can say, messy and unruly, but fun Georgian period, right? You say in your preface in Crown and Scepter, and you, you mentioned it earlier, too, in the interview, that by Victoria's time, monarchs didn't rule, they reigned. Can you explain that and clarify that for listeners? Yes, absolutely. So the turning point came in 1689 with the Bill of Rights. I mentioned that this contract made by William and Mary. Um, so when monarchs ruled, you know, they ran the country. Government served them. But then there was this turning point after the English Civil War and the execution of the monarch, Charles I. Then the power balance shifted and it, that was then confirmed with the Bill of Rights. And from that day forward, monarchs reigned. It was a ceremonial, largely symbolic position. Uh, yes, government still needed their assent on certain things, but it was government, it was parliament that was in charge, not the monarchy. And so that was the real turning point. And that's been the case ever since 1689. We have a reigning monarch. We don't have a ruling monarch. Now, Queen Elizabeth II um, has been quoted as remarking that as monarch, you have to be seen to be believed. Now, as we saw, Elizabeth I, I think, would certainly have subscribed to that. But can you talk about Queen Victoria? Because I'm going to guess she might have agreed with that, too. And how did she manipulate her image through PR from her uh, ascension to the throne forward? Oh, she so did. Absolutely. She was very uh, skilled at manipulating her image. And she had the a very opposite of a hard act to follow, let's be honest, with, uh, with Victoria. She had these wicked uncles, as they were known, her immediate predecessor, William IV, and then uh, his predecessor, George IV, um, who, the sons of George III, they were both sons of George III. They didn't like marrying very much. They liked mistresses. And they had something like 52 illegitimate children between them, uh, but really struggled to have a legitimate one, hence Victoria becoming queen by this kind of accident of birth. So she just had to prove that she was not like them. And what was in her favour is that she was very young. She was just 18 when she became queen. And she was seen as very pure and innocent and uncorrupted. And then, of course, early in her reign, she made this glorious marriage. It was a true love match to Prince Albert. And then they became almost like the, the moral blueprint for the nation. But, uh, this was the standard that their subjects should try to emulate. They had this ideal family life. They were devoted to each other, faithfully married, 
They had nine children. And, and so this gave their subjects a bit more faith in the monarchy than had existed before. And they never missed an opportunity to be either painted or later to be photographed with their family and, you know, giving speeches about uh, matrimony and about their, their piety. And so Victoria absolutely was seen as one of the most morally upstanding monarchs there had ever been. And that's what the country needed after the Georgians. And then in 1861, Albert dies. Can you talk about how Victoria viewed her role and her public role as a monarch before the death of Albert and then after? What happened and what changed? Yeah, I mean, for Victoria, everything changed. On the, on the night of Albert's death, she wrote in her journal, all, all was over. Like that was it for Victoria. She thought her life had ended. He was only 42. She adored him. Well, before Albert's death, she had very much deferred to Albert. Even though she was queen, she was content for him to run the show, really, because she was almost continually pregnant during their marriage, apart from anything else. But she was a very traditional Victorian housewife, as she saw it. You know, the husband was in charge. Then, of course, Albert goes, and uh, his death is a real watershed moment. And Victoria's immediate reaction is just to retire. She, she goes into complete seclusion. For more than a decade, she won't fulfill her public royal duties. And there's a real backlash against this. People start to question the value of monarchy because they never see their queen. Uh, you know, she'd really shot herself in the foot with this. And then she comes back. She's persuaded by her ministers to come back. And goodness me, does she come back and she comes back full of opinions and she suddenly wants to meddle in politics where she hadn't before. And I think her ministers rather wish she'll go away again because <laughs> she's meddling now in politics. And this is when Victoria really comes into her own. And she's the Victoria that we kind of imagine, that stridently self-confident empress. You know, she, she's an empress as well as a queen. And that's how really she's gone down in history, I think. The heir apparent, Albert Edward, we'll call him Bertie, the Prince of Wales. You shared in the book, I found this fascinating, that Victoria was the first reigning English queen whose actual offspring went on to assume the throne. Am I correct about that? You're correct. Absolutely. But he was a little bit of a problem, right, Tracy? He became king after Victoria uh, passed away in 1901. But it seems that even Victoria and Albert found him a little challenging. Can you talk about Bertie and the problems associated with, with him? I know. It seems queens are blighted either by failing to produce an heir or if they do produce one, one who's totally unsuitable uh, to be king, um, which was the case really with Bertie, fond though I am of him. Victoria and Albert called him a thorough and cunning lazybones. So he was a typical playboy prince, and he was Prince of Wales for a very long time. He was the longest serving Prince of Wales until our current king, Charles, who of course has since uh, superseded that record. And he didn't really put his time in waiting to good use by learning the job. He was always in the south of France and going to the theatre and being in the company of his mistresses. But yes, he, so he came to the throne upon his mother's death. And he really wanted to ring the changes because his mother had been this morally upstanding monarch and now it was all going to be one long party. But of course, he was already then getting on a bit and he, his health wasn't great. And he really struggled to attend his coronation. It had to be delayed because he, he wasn't very well. Um, and his reign actually ended up being quite brief. But the Edwardian era, he gave his name to the Edwardian era and that's still seen as this kind of liberal, exciting time. But it, yeah, it didn't last very long. Now, you've noted that so much of the great pomp and ceremony and all the great pageantry that I can't wait to see coming up that we often see at royal events today, much of that actually goes back to Victoria's time. Can you talk about that and how her coronation, in fact, it affected some of that or contributed to some of that? Yes, yeah, so much of the so-called ancient ceremony surrounding the crown actually only goes back as far as Victoria. She, for example, 
really established the model of royal weddings, wearing white. That's all thanks to Victoria because she wanted to be seen. Now, her coronation was actually uh, seen as too much pairing back because it was a time of economic hardship. And also Victoria wanted to be different from her extravagant predecessors who'd spent eye-watering amounts on their coronations. So she actually economised so much that people criticised it as the penny crowning. Uh, that's what they called it because it didn't cost very much, but it was glorious. And people came out in their, in their hundreds of thousands to see it. But I would say, though, that actually the coronation was one royal ceremony that we don't owe so much to Victoria for. It goes back much further. And what we're going to see on May the 6th owes much more to actually the Anglo-Saxons and uh, the, the 10th century kings. Uh, they really set the blueprint of coronations uh, with you know, the key elements of the anointing, the crowning, the robes that were worn, even down to some of the music. It's still being played uh, centuries later. And so the coronation is one of the truly authentic royal ceremonies that we can say really is ancient. So Tracy, with the coronation and really any great royal event, it just makes us come back and look at the monarchy and look at, look at the history of the monarchy. What is it about all that that keeps us coming back? Well, actually, I'm going to quote to you something that was said in the reign of Queen Victoria because it's inspired, really, um, the, the wonderful title of your podcast, you know, The Gilded Gentleman, and, and this really plays to it. And so it was said that really what people value is the bling, you know, the, the, the pomp and the pageantry, the glamour. And this 19th century member of parliament said, the mass of people expect to see a crown and a scepter and all that sort of thing. They want the gilding for their money. And I think they'll get it. <laughs> <laughs> I think they'll get it big time on the 6th of May. Now, I want to scope out a little bit. We've talked specifically about the Tudors. We talked about Elizabeth I. We've just spent some time on Victoria. But you've covered the entire scope of the British monarchy in crown and scepter. Mostly kings, a few queens in there. Uh, just for the Gilded Gentlemen's listeners, are there a couple in that mix that you feel are just utterly overlooked, that you admire, and that we should read about and run out and buy a copy of Crown and Scepter to understand them better? Well, I would say actually some of the um, early medieval kings, they've kind of been bunched together or overlooked entirely. Uh, for example, um, Henry I. I would have struggled to, to name three facts about Henry I before writing Crown and Scepter. But as well as being really the father of English government, he set up so much of the, the government structure, uh, which doesn't sound all that thrilling. But at, at the same time, he also has the dubious honour of being the monarch who has fathered the most illegitimate children. He fathered 27 himself. So there you go. Henry I, I've given you a couple of facts. And the other, well, I suppose it's a royal dynasty. It's not just a monarch. But I think the Plantagenets are absolutely fascinating. And I, I really want to shine more of a spotlight on those because hopefully I've got across some of the colour of that era in the book. Because much as I am first and foremost a Tudor historian, what went directly before is so fascinating and contains some of the darkest chapters actually in our royal history. I'm thinking particularly the princes in the tower, Richard III, the great whodunit. I'd love to say that, by the way, the book includes whodunit, but it doesn't. <laughs> but it does discuss some of the contenders. Um, so yeah, the sort of early part. But then, you know, equally, I hope as well as shining a light on little known monarchs, I've also perhaps recast some monarchs as well. And I'm thinking in particular of Edward VIII, who in 1936 abdicated for the love of Wallace Simpson because he couldn't stay king and, and marry this American divorcee. But the darker side of Edward VIII from this sort of romantic story is something that really fascinated and I have to say shocked me as well. Uh, he was quite a cruel man and I brought a lot of that out in the book. 
One of the things that I think is so special about your work is that you uncover men and women of the court that were near royal power, but that we might not know at all, but were terribly influential. Are there a couple of examples you can share like that that will certainly interest and surprise uh, some listeners? Oh, completely. And the first one who springs to mind is Henrietta Howard. She was the long-serving, long-suffering mistress of King George II. And let's not skip over the Georgians because you're right, it was a crazy period, but they're fascinating. And Henrietta, um, she was this, we would call her an it girl. You know, she was a society girl. She was friends with all the great and the good. She inspired the likes of Alexander Pope and, and Jonathan Swift. She was incredible. She was an amazing intellectual force in her own right. And she was married to this idiot, Charles Howard, who was just completely wrong in every respect. And then she became the mistress of George II, really just to protect herself against her husband. And and George II was not a gift to intellectual thinking, should we say. And but but it gave her protection, this affair. I love the fact that as well as having influence through being the king's mistress, she also actually got a salary as mistress. It was an official position. She got a pension when she retired from being... I love that. It's good. Uh, That's great. (laughs) There you go. It's an official role. You can imagine it advertised in the newspapers today. (laughs) So Henrietta really epitomized, I guess we would call it soft power. She didn't have official power, but anyone who spends time alone with the king is going to be influential. Of course. Now, I'd like to move up to our modern day today and the coronation, which is coming up ever so quickly. Will you have a special seat for the coronation? And what will you be watching for specifically? I would love to say that I've got a front row seat. I'd be lying. I'm going to be watching it on television like everybody else. But um, I may well be watching it from a television studio. I think I'm going to be doing quite a lot of um, TV and radio, I think, uh, on the 6th of May. And I'm particularly interested in this moment of anointing. This is seen as the most sacred part of the ceremony when the new monarch almost gets God-given powers at this moment. They're anointed with holy oil. We have never seen an anointing ever. Because even though our new king's mother, Elizabeth II, her coronation was the first to be televised, they turned the cameras off for the anointing. And it's going to be fascinating to see whether actually the cameras stay on, whether we finally get to see what happens, or actually whether it's decided that this special sacred moment has to stay that way. And and we have to kind of just guess at what takes place. Um, So that's the part I'm particularly fascinated by. Could you describe for listeners what the anointing consists of and what that procedure is? Yes. So the anointing really with holy oil and and the, the holy oil is apparently, you know, centuries old, or at least it's derived from oil that is associated with Thomas Beckett, the saint, um, and uh, really, this is when uh, the, the presiding priest or cleric, which is usually the Archbishop of Canterbury, we know it will be in this case, um, they anoint the new monarch uh, with holy oil prior to them being actually crowned. So it's quite a short moment. It's, I guess it's kind of like a christening, you know, with the, with the sort of the touching of the, the water from the baptismal font. It's that sort of idea. But it's quite vague what we do know about it, actually. We know it's brief. We know it involves the holy oil. Um, and we know the theory, but because it's always been so shrouded in secrecy, the actual reality has remained in the shadows. And so I'm really hoping actually we do get to see that bit. I am too. And I'm sure all my listeners will be too. Now, I must ask you, as a combination of tradition and innovation and with this extraordinary perspective that you have, how do you see possibly the current monarchy evolving and fitting into this long line that has gone on before? Well, I think the British monarchy has proved remarkably resilient and chameleon-like. It's able to adapt itself to the times, and that's the key to its success and its survival. And it was once said that an ideal monarch should be always changing, always the same. 
In other words, uphold tradition, but also you need to innovate. You need to keep up with the times. And the late queen did that brilliantly. One thing that we don't talk about enough is that she finally introduced equality into the succession so that now female heirs have equal precedence with male heirs. It only took a thousand years. She achieved it. So you have to innovate, but you also have to keep those traditions so beloved of the people. And I think what we might see as well is increasing focus on charitable work, on the monarch as kind of advocate for good causes or causes close to their heart, the environment. You know, we've had a lot about Charles's involvement in that. So I do think there's still relevance. I am asked this a lot. Why do we still have a monarchy? I do still, I firmly believe they still have a role to play. Now, Tracy, I usually end my interviews with a trademark gilded gentleman question, which I have to say in this case is really quite unfair because of the incredible breadth of history and the characters and people that you have written about. But here goes. So if there are one or two people that you would really, really like to sit down and talk with, if you have some really burning questions that history doesn't really seem to be able to answer, who would you want to sit down and have a cup of tea with? And what would you ask them? Oh, you know, of course, I'm going to have to say Elizabeth I is one of them. I think your listeners would be shocked if I didn't. After all this, I would sit Elizabeth down and I'd be terrified, but um, I would um, I would ask her uh, how she really felt about her father. I think I know what she felt about her mother, but I would want to know really, did she resent him for chopping her mother's head off? What was her relationship with her father? And, and I think that'd be the, the burning question. And the other one, um, and I'm sorry to be so predictable, but it'd be Thomas Cromwell, um, because such a fascinating character, so compelling. I would love to just see if I'm right about him and his character. But what I'd like to ask him is the exact nature of his involvement in Anne Boleyn's downfall. Who was really pulling the strings? Because we still debate this very hotly. Yes, Cromwell orchestrated the whole thing, but was he acting on Henry's orders or was he acting on his own initiative? That's what I want to know. Tracy, gosh, there is so much more that we could discuss, and there are so many more kings and queens, but I thank you so much for joining me here today for our coronation celebration and sharing all your brilliant research and insight. I do hope you'll come back to The Gilded Gentleman and do another show. Well, I think I have to, at least <laughs> half a dozen by the end of the year. We've got so much to talk about. <laughs> thank you so much, Tracy. What an honor to have you here today. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support helps me to manage the costs of researching, writing, creating, and producing the show. I couldn't do it without you. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Gold.